As we do each and every Lord's Day, let's join now together with God's people. Take our copy of God's Word and we will turn to our passage for this morning and week. Turn my microphone on, that will help. We'll turn to our passage for this morning and week and that's Acts chapter 8, verses 4 through 8. So Acts 8, 4 through 8. We are in the part of this narrative of Acts where, where Stephen has been murdered. He has been uh, stoned to death for his faithful faithfulness to Christ and to the gospel. And this leads to this bloodlust of the Sanhedrin and their followers. And they are going out to, to persecute the church. And, and Luke says that it is beyond really the point of persecution, it's to the point of being ravaged. That they're not just trying to intimidate or stop the church. Their, their goal is the total destruction of the church. So he tells us that that Saul, along with others, are going from house to house, door to door, looking for followers of Christ. To take parents away from the children, to break up families, simply because they are faithful to Christ. And when we read down to the surface level, it looks like a bleak picture. The church is being ravaged. They're being put in prison. They're being killed. But as we saw in our passage last week, and some of the language that Luke uses... God's at work. God's at work through this, and God has a greater good in mind for all this. Because as the the Christians are being scattered, they're being scattered out away from Jerusalem, we're seeing the the parable of the sower come to life there. Because as the disciples of of Jesus leave Jerusalem and go to, to all these different regions, they're scattering the seed of the gospel all along the way. They're going along telling others about Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior, about them being sinners in need of a Savior. And our passage this morning tells us, in particular, about one of those faithful who is out sharing the gospel. And how this leads to encouragement for us to share the gospel with whoever God puts in our path as well. And so let me pray for our time together as we come before this passage. Lord, our prayer is simple this morning because we are simple people who have a simple need. And that is for you to open our hearts and our minds so we may hear your word and believe it. So we may receive Christ and rest upon him as he's offered to us in this part of your holy word. Make yourself known to us this morning, we pray in your word. May I be your faithful messenger and may your sheep hear your faithful word and may it encourage us in our faithfulness of you. We pray this now in the name of the one who is the incarnate God, Jesus Christ. Amen. So Acts chapter 8, verses 4 through 8. We will stand together now for the reading of God's word. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. And when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. You may be seated. Being the first at something, especially something monumental, can turn out to be an historical event. And we can think of many firsts that are written down over the course of history. 
such as Christopher Columbus, widely believed and understood for years to be one of the first to reach America. Roald Amundsen, I know I messed up the name, Roald Amundsen was the first to reach Antarctica. Anybody remember who's the first to sail around the world? Magellan. Charles Lindbergh had the first non-stop flight from New York to Paris. Who was the first man on the moon? Neil Armstrong. Sir Edmund Hillary was the first man to climb Mount Everest. Now a quick history quiz. Does anybody remember or know who the first pastor of Bethel ARP was? Reverend James Lyle, who was ordained and installed on May 4th, 1825. Another Bethel quiz. Who's the most handsome pastor in Bethel's history? <laughs> Don't need to answer it. Don't need to answer it. I'm sorry, who was it? Hmm? Lynn, <laughs> we've enjoyed you being here, and uh, good luck in your further endeavors. These folks and events are recorded in history because they were the first to do something. And a couple of Lord's days ago, we, we talked about Stephen and his being murdered. And so he's recorded in history as being the first martyr of the early church. The first one to die for the sake of Christ and for the gospel. And that's how Stephen will always be remembered, won't we? We may remember the detail of him being the first deacon. But for many of us, we will know the name Stephen because he is the first one to die for the sake of Christ, the church, and the gospel. And being the first in a long line of men and women to die for the same reasons. And we come to our passage this morning and Luke introduces us to another historical first. And it's the first missionary of the early church and as a man named Philip. And as we've talked about before, the early church was birthed at Pentecost in Jerusalem. And then the church just stayed there in the city. Now, now we're told that people from all around the world were coming to Jerusalem. And they were hearing the gospel. And they were responding in faith. And they were going back to their, to their home nations and to their hometowns. And we assume they went back and they were telling others about this Jesus and about this gospel. But that early church, those 120 in the upper room at Pentecost, that church was there in Jerusalem. And we remember that one of Jesus' last commands to his disciples was the Great Commission. For them to go, and, and actually that Greek word go assumes that they have been going, they are going, and they will continue to go. And they are to do what? They are to go to all the nations of the world, to all the corners of the earth, to share the gospel. And so the church being planted, the church being started, the, the, the church growing... That command is now being fulfilled now and here. That that parable of the sower is coming to life. And it all started because Stephen was martyred for his faith. And those religious leaders, those who are supposed to be the shepherds of the flock, now have a taste for Christian blood. As, as gruesome as that may sound, they, they, they got a taste for Christian blood. And now they go out and they're ravaging the church. And so the Christians are, are fleeing the city. But as we will see here moving forward, as they flee the city, they're not fleeing the faith. The hard times we're reading about here and they're coming forward, the Christians don't abandon their faith. At, at the first sign of hardship, they don't 
go burn their Bibles and, 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 and hide their, their Christian cross necklaces. They don't swear off Christ in the church. They're not, like, they're not like Peter the night before the crucifixion when they say, do you know this man? I do not know him. The language that Luke uses here in verse 4 is the same language in verse 1. It's the language of Christians scattering to see the gospel wherever they went. They're being hunted down. They're being dragged off the prison. Some of them are dying. But they don't abandon the faith. They continue in living faithfully and even sharing the gospels with others. Isn't that amazing to think? Everything had been going so good. And then in the course of a day, in the course of a day, one of their deacons was killed. And they began to start to be hunted down. And what do they do? They go out. They flee for their lives as they're fleeing They stop along the way and go, have you heard of Jesus Christ? Have you ever heard the gospel? They continue to faithfully share the gospel with others. We find that Peter here is given as as an example of that. Now this is not Philip who is one of the apostles. This is a different one. He's the one introduced to us when the first deacons were chosen. Matter of fact, he's the one named immediately after Stephen. So the Philip that Luke is talking about here is the Philip who was a deacon to early church. His name indicates that he was a Greek. He wasn't raised uh, in a Jewish family. So maybe he may have been converted by the preaching of Peter on the day of Pentecost. But according to Luke, and the attributes that were to be desired for deacons, we, we know this about Philip. He is a man of good reputation. In the church and out of the church, he had a good reputation. He was faithful to Christ, faithful to living for him, and he was full of godly wisdom that, that only comes from the study of scripture and, and living a life of faith for the glory of God and the joy of being his. That's Philip here. That's the Philip introduced us in his passage. This is the one who shares the gospel in Samaria. And that reads like a um that reads like a nice Sunday school lesson, doesn't it? But we need to keep this in mind about Philip. He was good friends with Stephen. They worked together as deacons. They, they worshiped together. They probably shared some significant portions of their lives together. They were good friends. And what happened to Philip's good friend? He was murdered. So the, the, the Philip we see here isn't this squeaky clean, feel-good story. This is the story of a man who was run out of house and home and city for his life. Because one of his best friends had just been murdered. Can you imagine waking up tomorrow morning thinking it's just a regular Monday. You're going to go through your regular Monday. And by the end of the day, one of your best friends had been murdered for their faith. And people were coming after you. And you're having to pack up your family to get to Winsboro as quickly as possible. And that's happening here to Philip. That's the reality of the situation. It's hard. It's difficult. And what does Philip do? Look at verse 5. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Philip is faithful. Faithful to Jesus and to sharing the good news of Jesus. 
And for those of us in the 21st century American church, we can read through this and think, oh, Samaria, somewhere along the way from Jerusalem. I hope Philip was able to find a nice hotel room and enjoy his night there, right? It's just a, it's just a dot on the map, someplace over there with some people doing something. But for the original readers, the name Samaria would have gotten their attention. Probably would have raised their eyebrows and maybe set up a little bit more to pay attention. Because to put it kindly, Samaria was not a friendly place for Christians. In fact, it could be a deadly place for Christians. Samaritans were thought to be descended from intermarriage between Israel's northern tribes and pagan peoples who had been uh, relocated during that time. So we already seen their genealogy, uh, something that worked against the Christian faith. There's this intermarriage uh, that had been uh, forbidden in the Old Testament, but these, uh, these Israelites, the, uh, the God's people, had decided to disobey God and not only intermarry, but intermarry with those who, who are pagans. Now, they were religious people. They, they revered the first five books of Moses, but those are the only books of the Bible that they held to. They didn't hold to the rest of it. We see in 2 Kings that uh, they combined devotion to idols with formalistic uh, service to the Lord. So it was, it was a weird amalgamation uh, of different religions, but, but certainly not a Christian religion. And relationships between Jews and Samaritans were, were strained at best and often hostile. So that's part of the background of the story of the Good Samaritan that Jesus told. And that's, that's what makes that story so, so shocking. That, that a Samaritan, of all people, one of those dirty, stinking, uh, no good Samaritans would, would help out this person on the side of the road. So Philip isn't going to a place that, that's open to the gospel. He wasn't going somewhere where people come to him going, Oh, we hear you know about Jesus. Please tell us more about Jesus. We want to... Hear the gospel. He was going somewhere where they hated Jews. And guess what Jesus was? A Jew. They would have hated the notion of of Jesus. Philip, leaving Jerusalem, going to Samaria to tell them about this Jewish Messiah. For those who are old enough, we remember the stories of Times Square in New York City in the 70s and 80s. It wasn't a good place. And this, in some ways, it would be like going to the Times Square at that time and sharing the gospel there. And people like Tim Keller did that very thing. And people still told him, you're absolutely out of your mind crazy for doing this. You don't go into enemy territory and do this. That's exactly what Philip did. By the providence of God and the sovereign leading of the Holy Spirit, Philip runs from Jerusalem and then goes straight into enemy territory so he can scatter the seed of the gospel. And Luke summarizes his message in a very simple terms. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaim to them the Christ. And that really is this, tells us everything we need to know. The Christ is the Greek word for Messiah. And the Messiah, the Christ, is the one who come to save his people. So Philip is preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. He's going to the city squares and, and, and places of Samaria and, Samaria, and he's telling Samarian people um, that, uh, about their sin and their sinfulness. 
He's pointing them to Jesus, who's the true Messiah. He's proclaiming the divinity and righteousness of Jesus Christ. He's preaching sermons that are, are full of Jesus. Sermons that, that, that savored the sweetness of Christ. He proclaimed to them the Christ. And they responded. If you've been around here long enough, you know <clears throat> excuse me, that one of my favorite pastors and theologians is Dr. Sinclair Ferguson, uh, who used to be the pastor of First President Columbia. But you know, his, his grasp <clears throat> of Christ in the, in the Bible, along with that Scottish accent, how could you not love someone like Sinclair Ferguson? But, but, but I find myself thinking, after I listen to his sermons, I, I find myself often thinking this. He loves Jesus. And, and I want to love Jesus like he does. He has a sermon uh, called the, the, the Waiting Father. And it is what I, I can listen to it a hundred times. At the end of it, I always think the same thing. He loves Jesus, and, and, I, and I want to love Jesus like he does. And I think there's no greater compliment that can be paid to a pastor than that. And that's Philip here. Because all Luke has to say is, here's Philip, and he told them about the Christ, and that tells us everything. He shared the gospel of Jesus. He pointed them to the love of Christ. He pointed to that sweetness of salvation that can be only found in Jesus and he lived it out. He lived it out among them, and the people responded. Verse 6. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being paid, what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. So it's interesting. This hostile people gather together, and they're paying attention to the gospel preached by Philip. That's every pastor's dream. I'm telling you, every pastor goes to bed on Saturday night worrying about his sermon for the next day, making sure he's got everything straight, and praying and dreaming that all the church members will be at church that morning. That as, he, as he comes out to conduct the service, to lead the service, he looks out and sees Every church member there. And they're filling the pews. And that they're they're listening intently to the sermon. They're not reading their Bibles. They're not counting the planks in the ceiling. They're not falling asleep. They're making eye contact. And they're nodding. And they're taking notes. And that's what Philip had in Samaria. They were listening intently to his sermons. He was telling them about Jesus. And they wanted to hear about Jesus. And they were amazed at how the Holy Spirit worked through, Peter, through Philip's life. It says in verse 7, For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were, were healed. So, so not, only was Peter, not only was Philip proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, but the power of the gospel was now accompanied by these miracles uh, of unclean spirits, of exorcisms taking place, uh, of the paralyzed and lame made to walk again. It, it was like the gospel was in bright, shining lights for all to see and to hear and to experience. And this was all happening in enemy territory. This wasn't the southern USA 
where there's a church on every street corner and people are at least familiar with Jesus. This is enemy territory. Philip goes into the middle of it, shares the gospel, and there the gospel takes root and begins to bear fruit. And that is a, Luke is making a deliberate contrast here. Because what's happening to the church in Jerusalem? It's being ravaged. The children of Satan are intent on destroying it. But what's happening in Samaria? A follower of Christ is going, sharing the gospel, and the church is being planted there. He has gone right into enemy territory to share the gospel. And the holy city, Christians are being killed. And the enemy city, Christians are being born. I believe it shows us that there are really only two responsible, or only two responses to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Either we will hear it, believe it, accept it, and follow it, or we will hate it and disavow it and try to tear it down. There is no middle ground. We either be a Samaritan or a Sanhedrin. And I want you to notice that what their response was to this gospel, verse 8. So there is much joy in that city. Philip comes in enemy territory. He preaches the gospel. And the people respond in joy. There's only one reaction, and it's joy. How could there be any other reaction? To hear, you were born dead in your sins and trespasses. You were born an enemy of God. And you deserve nothing but the deepest, darkest parts of hell. But God, rich in his grace and mercy, sent his only begotten Son, so that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. They hear the gospel, and it leads them to one place, and it's joy. How often do we make the connection between gospel and joy? We'll make the connection of the gospel and in heaven. We may make the connection of the gospel in a new way of life. But do we make the connection of the gospel and joy? Do we think of the gospel as being the gospel joy? That it's only through Jesus Christ, through only believing him, that we can have true joy. See, from the very beginning, God has intended us to have joy. When we think of the garden even before sin, we have to think of it as being a joyful place. The joy of being God, of being loved by God, of having fellowship with Him. One of the centerpieces of God's creation was joy. And joy, He created man and woman in His image. And joy, He had fellowship with them. And joy, He put them in the garden. So when we look at what Satan did in the garden, it was in part to rob us of that joy of the Lord. And that's been the work of Satan ever since, hasn't it? There is nothing Satan would love more than for us to be joyless. Do you remember what he said to Eve? Did God really say? That's a stab at joy, isn't it? Would God really keep you from the joy of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Can Adam and Eve believe that lie? 
And ever since, God's people have been chasing after the wrong joy. Think of how often our relationship with God can be marred by suspicion of God's goodness to us. We may even think, that does God really want me to have joy? And I think if we were to take a survey of of people who go to a church, say, two to three times a month, regular attenders, and we were to take a survey and ask them, do you think God intends for you to have joy? My gut feeling is a majority of them are going to say, well, no. Why would God want me to have joy? A life, or we can think of a Christian life as being a joyless one. A life that keeps us from real fun, right? The, the real fun of sin. It keeps us from real fun so that way we don't go to hell and then we spend a rather boring eternity in heaven. But at least it's not hell, right? Maybe, maybe that's our idea of heaven. It's heaven because at least it's not hell. So how often do we make the connection between the gospel and joy? I think... Um, I think one of the most striking things about this is um, we think about Jesus and he knows the cross is coming. He knows he's going to be crucified. He, he knows the physical anguish of it. He knows this, the spiritual anguish that's heading that way or heading this way. And he prays. And, and, and that prayer is recorded for us in John 17. So many wonderful parts to this prayer, but I want you to hear this part. What Jesus is praying for you and me as he's facing the cross. He he prays this. But now I am coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Think about that. Jesus is preparing for the cross. He prays for you and I to have joy. As as as, As he looks at the ministry of the cross, he thinks in terms of uh, that he wants us to, to, to have joy, to be joyful, to live joyfully. That, that we are meant to have this deep abiding joy of the Lord in, in our minds and hearts. And, and think about Philip here. Philip is in the doldrums. He has to be in the doldrums. His, his best friend has been, has been murdered. He's been away, run away from, from, from home and from family. And he goes straight to enemy territory and, and he shares the gospel of Jesus Christ, the, the, the joy of Christ. And they respond in joy. And it says they respond with much joy. See, the great lie of Satan is that we can only find joy apart from Christ. That, that sins are what really brings us joy, right? That, that's, that, that's what makes us happy. Did God really say to be holy? No, there's no joy in holiness. Go out and, 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 and do it all. That's what brings you joy. God's, God's the ultimate joy kill, right? Can it really bring you true joy if it separates you from Jesus and paves the path to hell? And Jesus prayed for us to know this joy. That true, everlasting joy. So this morning as we close, I, I want us to close by, by thinking through this together. Does the gospel bring you joy? Does it bring you deep joy? Does it bring you everlasting joy? Not just that you don't have to go to hell. 
does the message of Jesus, does it bring you joy? Knowing how loved you are by God, even when you don't deserve it, does that bring you joy? Knowing that this love has pursued you to the very gates of hell, does that bring you joy? Knowing your eternal inheritance and reward, neither of which you come close, even close to deserving, does that bring you joy? Does the gospel bring you joy? If not, then why? What do you think can bring us more joy than Jesus? What do you think can bring us more joy than, than being disloved by Jesus? See, his joy will only come through faith in Christ. It's only the joy of Christ that will meaningfully change us from the inside out. Jesus came into enemy territory to share the gospel and the joy of that gospel. When we are like the Samaritans. We have hated Jesus. We were born to hate Jesus in our sins and sinfulness. But Jesus said to us somewhere along the way, one of his messengers, to say, here's who you are, and here's who Jesus is. And when we respond in faith, then we are brought to this joy. Here in a moment, we're going to sing, turn your eyes upon Jesus. If you don't have that joy to faith in your life, there's only one solution. That's to turn your eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of joy. If you don't have this joy, turn to Jesus, maybe for the first time and notice joy. Or turn to Jesus and be reminded of that joy. That you are this loved. You are this treasured. You are this prized. Because when we know this joy, then we will share it with others. And there are others who are dying to know this joy. May we know it. We may share with others. Let's pray together.